0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. I'd like to introduce Martin Johnson, who is giving this session. This is the Perspectives of Assessment series, as I said, for the network. I'm sure you've seen the information about the session, but just to say this is really important to us in the research division... I should say I'm Sylvia Green, Director of Research, so I would say this, wouldn't I? But it is very important because we do spend a great deal of time and resource looking at research methodologies and looking at how we can keep up to speed with recent developments in methodology, but also to evaluate and always keep looking at what we're doing and seeing how well it works and how it might work better and trying to disseminate that in sessions such as this. Uh, this work has also been published, I believe, Martin, in our Research Matters Journal, which you, you can find if you <coughs> look at our website, the Cambridge Assessment website. Martin's done a great deal of work in this area and has worked with other colleagues on this. I hope I'm not stealing what you were going to say, but Rita Nardis worked on this, as did Sanjana maita I would add both of those people have left the country. So I don't know whether that was because they didn't want to do this this afternoon. Uh, One of them has actually gone abroad with her husband. She's uh, left us. The other one is at the ECER conference. So they have good reasons for not being here. Uh, So Martin is shouldering the burden this afternoon of the whole event. (laughs) Consequently, we're having two lots of tea and cake so that he can have a break in the middle. We'll be having the first session about half an hour just over from now, and then we'll have a break. We'll come back after about 15 minutes, and we'll have the second part of the session. And at the end, we'll take questions, Martin. Is that what you'd like to do? Um, The session is being recorded, audio recorded, so Martin's presentation is being recorded, but once we get to the discussion part of the afternoon, it will not be recorded, so you can <coughs> all feel free to have your say. So we look forward to that. Uh, so I'll hand over to Martin to give us what I'm sure is going to be a very engaging presentation. Thank you very much, Thank Martin. You, no Thank pressure you. there, then. None at all, Martin, <laughs> none at all.
1: Absolutely right, the idea of engaging with methods is something very important, and whenever we try and think about methods, we look to pop music to give us some sort of steer on things. Gary Lightbody's always, I I always look to. (laughs) I, I actually don't. But it was something which I was listening to the other day. And it just, this line through, you know, sort of while I was thinking about this seminar sort of came out my iPod. And I thought, actually, there's something here about knowledge, what we think we know about stuff. And actually the difficulties of trying to know some of the things that are very close to us. So, for example, what's, you know, in someone else's head. And I think that's, you know, quite pertinent because... This whole session is really about trying to look at a method or methods, which are all about trying to get into someone's head and what they're thinking and and how can we know what they're they're thinking. So that's really just that little interlude. If you don't mind, I'm going to sit down because there's so much to try and remember in this. As Sylvie said, it's quite a long presentation. Splitting into two sessions, but actually I can't remember it all. So I'm going to sit here and be prompted by the screen now and again. Sanjana and Rita... Were colleagues on this. As we know, they've, they've disappeared and left me holding the methodological baby, I suppose. And the title, I think, is a little bit ambiguous because it, it talks about how do researchers use these methods. And I think the abstract's very clear in that it's really about how have researchers used these methods. And I think that's an important distinction because it's not really a workshop on how you use these methods. It's more about let's look at how people have and what do we learn from that. And what does it tell us about those methods and what we can know from them? So, really, that's, that's what this, this session's about. Just so you can see, my colleagues, they've got big smiles on their faces, which is probably indicative of the fact that they're not here and there's someone probably somewhere, probably much sunnier. But I thought I'd bring them along. And the session overview. Just want to talk a little bit about you know, where methods fit in terms of our work in a very general sense. That's very brief. And then the graphic, I think, sort of tries to encapsulate the fact that both, both inquiries, because they were two separate inquiries that we did, they were sort of reviews of methodology and its use, but they followed a similar sort of pattern. And we're going to talk through the first bit about CRAS before the break, and then after that we'll talk about KRG and Kelly's stuff. But really they, they followed a sort of similar, similar pattern in terms of the way that we, we tried to interrogate them. And it really was that we sort of consulted the background documentation that, that we could get hold of in terms of how they were formulated, what were the assumptions underpinning their development, where were they coming come in from methodologically. And then we used that in two ways. One was to go through and try to look at their uses and to see how or whether there'd been any compromises in that journey to their outcomes, but also to try, when we looked at the outcomes, to go right back to the beginning again and say, actually, what are these in line with the original intentions of that method? Or have there been things which would worry us? Or things to watch out for? And I think then we get to developments or, or the idea of, you know, what would we recommend about, about the use of these things. And, um, and I think the story, in a sort of nutshell, is that, you know, we have methods here which have been applied to situations and contexts, and actually that's where it gets interesting, because once you've, you've got something which is ideally, you know, good, you put it in a context, you start to have to, to make adaptations, you make decisions about how to apply it. And that's where it gets a little bit interesting. So we've tried to sort of articulate what I think are a few themes which actually help us to discuss some of those, some of those adaptations and, and whether they might be legitimate or not. So methods. Obviously methods work as a central role, as Sylvia says. What we're about really is trying to expand our, our repertoire of methods within our division, and also across the the organisation generally. And we do try and, you know, feed into the the organisation through that. Within the research programme itself, there are... There's a strand which is based on looking at methods, whether it's about evaluation or or about just inquiry in general. But also we have, you know, ideas which we get through professional development, training and seminars. There's another strand which is really about developing new methods. um, So we can, you know as much as possible, allow theory to inform practice. And there's a little note there about demands analysis, and that's something, you know, Jackie Greatrex, who's, again, not here, who's at conference at the minute, has been doing some work on trying to conceptualise demands in vocational and general qualifications in relation to each other and constructing a, maybe a, a new framework for trying to conceptualise those demands. So what we're about is, you know, understanding where we are, but also trying to, to build on that. So by interrogating the old, we can start to move on with the new. And then there's obviously sharing expertise. So the idea that we have a number of strands of work which allow us to try and get out of the office and and think more broadly. There's a reading group which looks at qualitative methods which I've been helping to convene over the last year and a half, which if anyone's not a member of, they're very happy to to become a member of, if you like. Obviously, the network and the divisional seminars that, that we, we stage, which are open to internal people or sometimes internal and external people. Conferencing and uh, journal publications. And the outcomes of this work, I'll, I'll get to at the end, really. There are some, some journals, uh, articles, which we can point towards, which have come out of this work. This is my chance to try and share responsibility... Um, as well as Sanjana and Rita who else are elsewhere, who I, I'll not let you forget there are a number of people here who, um, who've helped really formulate this work it's, it's been a sort of coming together lots of lots of heads and it's a great thing to do it's been really useful to be able to sort of try to capture a lot of experience that actually resides within the organisation and to try and put them down on paper so there are a few people who've done that who've helped us to do that some methods and comparability. I'm, I, you know, I, I wouldn't profess to be an expert in comparability. There's a lot more, a lot of people in this room who are much more attuned with this than I am. But just a few of the, the main points, really. The idea of its growing importance within policy discourse, you know, looking at making comparisons between different qualifications and assessments, very key. I mean, one of the, the big areas, I suppose, is, is, is in the area of the fact that you can actually get to the same. Place the same outcome by very many different routes, so in terms of you know whether you go into higher education or into work, you can get there through various different pathways so and what we 're trying to you know, interrogate is whether there 's equity within those you know is, is it easier or more difficult to get there if you choose one or not of those pathways and you know that raises this this challenge of let's let 's try and understand what makes those qualifications how do they compare with each other jill 's work has already started to, to outline the fact that there are different types of methods for looking at comparability, statistical, judgmental. This one's ju- judgmental, I know that much. And then something which is survey, observational, anecdotal, I think. And you've written about those in Research Matters, I think, haven't you? So there are a variety of different methods you could choose. This one is about judgmental methods, and I think that's you know, a, a big area in its own right. When you're looking at qualifications and assessments, it's quite usual to look at them in terms of their parts, their components. They're, they're very unwieldy things often. You know, Qualifications are, are comprise lots and lots of things, lots of skills, lots of different aspects. And I think what this story that, that we look at here is, is about is really about the fact that we go back to very small things very often. We're looking at very small parts of qualifications, maybe a unit or an aspect of a qualification. And it's at that level we're making comparisons because that's where the sort of judgment is probably the most, maybe the most pure, I guess. But it's actually about trying to reduce back to some of those very small aspects which then get built and you know, compiled together and then you end up with something else. But actually, I think that's a bit of the story here. You know, we're looking at very small judgments at particular points in time, looking at particular things. I must mention the Cambridge approach because that's something which you know, brings together this idea of the use of methods to try and develop qualifications and the role of our organisation to try and really interrogate and put together those things. And, and that's part of the mission, part of the value structure that we work within, I think. And, and there's a sort of reference there to some work that I was doing last year with archaeologists, which is the idea that actually this alignment of methods and, and understanding can actually help us to sort of Interrogate, worked, work forward in qualification development and assessment development, and so there's a case study in one of the references, which there's a list at the end, which allows, which outlines one of those, you know, times that we we, we've worked on that, and that's just for for information's sake. So, where does CRAS come from? It's very important, I think. You know, we we know that this is one type of way of looking at demands. But there are other ways. As we said, Jackie's working on stuff at the moment. The CRAS, which is Complexity, Resources, Abstractness, and Strategy approach, actually was an adaptation of an earlier tool, which was developed in an Australian context by Edwards and Delalba. And that was something which was sort of adapted and brought across to, to our context for a specific purpose. And I think it's interesting the contrast, contrast of these two different tools or frameworks, depending on how you want to address them, that they sort of give you an insight into the, sort of the assumptions which underpin either, and in particular, CRAS. So the scale of cognitive demands had four dimensions, which were termed constructs. These are different from constructs of assessment. Four different dimensions of cognitive demand, uh, which are outlined there for you. They were used in lower secondary science in particular, uh, and as I say, in an Australian context. So they were very different from where Crass ended up being. But that's very much where it came from. And it was really about a notion which underpins both, which is that you have you have different dimensions of demand, which come together somehow, you know, to, to make an overall demand. But actually what you have is an interplay of those dimensions. So in this case, you have those four dimensions. One of them will be a principle. But actually, it's something in the interrelationship of those different demands which actually forms the overall. And it's not as simple as saying, just add them up together and come out with the outcome, because they can compensate for each other. So you can have high levels of principal demands in something, but that can be you know, broken down or, made or reduced because of what's going on in the other dimensions. And that's a really important principle which carries through into CRAS. The, pr- the main practical limitation of the original tool scale of cognitive demand, was that it was, was quite unwieldy. The teachers found it very useful, and it was designed for teachers to use. And what they basically were doing was looking at assessment materials, teaching materials, and curriculum materials, I think, and to try and see if there was an alignment between the three things. So they were looking at whether, you know, for example, the complexity dimension was matched. So they were looking at sort of triangulation. And if one of those three... You know, types of material was out of kilter with the others, gave them a, a sort of language to talk about that, so they considered it very useful as a tool, but quite unwieldy because it was quite labour-intensive. But that's where they were, and that's what it looked like. So basically, you had the four levels or four dimensions of demand over six different levels, and. Of those 24, if you like, criteria or levels within those cri- dimensions, 20 of them were, were defined. So it was pretty clearly articulated. But as I said, this was about just lower secondary science materials. And this is where you know, CRAS developed from. But as I said, they found it very useful. And it gave them a language to talk about these things, which probably, did, perhaps didn't exist before. So that's, you know, it was contributing to that discussion. But then we move on to Crass, and that was, you know, it had another particular context to work within. So it was brought across the UK context. It was to look at the effects of item structure on demands. And item structure being things like layout of a question, or operational steps within a problem. Um, and this was in GCSE and A-level examination items in particular. The judgments of demand were, were made in advance of any knowledge about the students' performances on those items or tasks. And this is a really another one of those key aspects of, of conceptual understanding, I think, which, which sort of informs how we think about CRASs. It was very clear at the stage of development that there was a conceptual difference between what was demand and what was difficulty. And I'm not, again, an expert in this, but at a simple level, demand was something that existed before an item was taken, for example. It was within the construction of the item. These were the things that the writer was conceptualising as existing within the item. So things that they think the stages of thinking that the student would go through, um, for example there's no sort of statistical measure in that sense because it's actually existing prior to the to the item being sat we compare that with difficulty for it, which is something which is almost post i guess is post hoc it's something you could measure it's something that you could look at when you have a number of students who would take the item and then you would be able to say well actually a lot of kids got this wrong or a lot of kids got this right and this would give you an idea of how difficult it was or wasn't for those people so demands and difficulty are conceptually very different and this was really about the front end about you know what is within the question and it stands intrinsically or exists intrinsically within the item and it's not about what happens to those students when they take it in particular and interestingly i think crass explores validity through looking at the relationship between the intended demands of whoever wrote the question. So what they were expecting, the steps they were expecting the student to go through when they answered the question, and what actually was the outcome in terms of, did they do that? So, you know, you have that sort of triangulation, that internal triangulation process like we had in the scalar cognitive demands, but this is about what was in the intentional head of an examiner or a question writer and actually how that played out in reality. So did the students do those things? So was the item working, if you like, in the way that the person intended. And that's validity in this sense. And there are, you know, hundred and one ways of talking about validity, but for our sake, that's how we look at it in terms of crass. I think that's fair to say. So this was the framework as devised. And it's very important to you know, we look at it, it it's it's sort of different from the original scalar cognitive demands. There are sort of parallels. And, and, you know, the differences come around because of the adaptations of context, I think. You know, the idea of shifting it, it had a slightly different purpose and it had a slightly different relationship to, to where, what it was looking at. So what we had was the removal of openness and whatever the I stood for, implicitness, I think, and they were collapsed into resources, so that became the R, and then there was an S strategy added into this one. So you can see down the edge... Uh, on the left-hand side there, what each of those dimensions stood for. You'll also notice that there are more gaps in the framework. It's a very, I'd say, a different sort of animal in one respect. Space for interpretation, space to fill those boxes. And this, I think, plays out in terms of what is the role of the researcher in the end or whoever's using this tool, because there's more work to be done here. It, It is a sort of skeleton, Instead of six levels, we have five levels. And within those five levels, we only have two levels which are actually defined. So there are some gaps there. So using the framework, sort of three stages, really. And this isn't a workshop. <laughs> but you know, this gives a flavour of, of how you know, the, the stage is involved, if you were to try and see how it would be used. The first stage is about defining the meaning of the dimensions themselves. What what we call this in our our paper is really the mapping process. And stages one and two really are are mapping in 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 these cases. So what does complexity or abstractness or whatever look like in the items in this particular assessment that we're looking at at the moment? So it's really trying to lay out the sort of landscape in terms of those dimensions. And then once that's done, there's a more specific mapping, which is looking at within dimension... What is level two or four or five or three when we look at it? So what this process is really is about engaging with those frames, which are laid out in the skeleton framework, but actually trying to put a language or put in words to the, the, the things you're seeing in a question. So there's a lot of language work and there's a lot of you know, articulation. And that is the sort of heart of the, of the, the process. And then what you do is use those the scales which you've generated to score items, and it gives you a qualitative profile and a basis for comparison with any quantitative difficulty measures. But at this stage, I, I, you know, caution because this is tentative. Take you right back to the beginning where we talked about the difference between demand and difficulty. There's a lot of things happen when someone sits a question. You know There are a lot of things to take into consideration as to what influenced their outcome. And it's not just the demand of the question. So it, there is a tentative relationship, which is worth exploring, but we can't say that the demand of a question is, is a primary influence at all sometimes in the way that some students will answer a question. And that's you know an interesting point for, for discussion, I think. And what you get in the end is, you know, you can look at a profile and... The, the graphic at the bottom is, is from something that somebody, uh, I think it's Rita and Irene Casuto, did some work on, on some questions, and this was one of the profiles that they came up with. You know, you've got questions one to four from different examinations, and what you do have is a sort of profile for each one of those questions. And you know, what you can say, given a proviso that it might be the same person who's constructed these these scores, is that. You know, the complexity in question three from examination three is is higher than it is in question four of examination four. But actually the strategy use is is inverse, so there's a sort of, you know, something going on there which is different. So that's the sort of, you know, outcome you can reach. You can get a score for each one of the dimensions for an item, for, for a particular assessment. So what do the outcomes mean? Let's that the the item or the overall demand is is something around the interdependence of those, is is gained from the interdependence of those different dimensions. So changing one aspect of demand will probably alter some of the other dimensions in some sort of way. And this sort of makes it less than meaningful to just add up those different numbers to get an overall profile. I think the, the strength of the method is really about trying to interrogate, well, so what is complexity here, rather than what is it in conjunction with all these other things? It facilitates judgments about the demands of tasks, but they're essentially qualitative or descriptive in nature. And, and Sarah Hughes, who worked with Alastair Pollitt on this development work back in, in the late 90s, were very clear to say that what, what this is about is articulating. It's providing a language which allows people to share expertise and knowledge, you know, it gives you a frame of reference for that sort of discussion. And what it's about is really about a macro-level understanding. It's really about trying to look at things in a general sense, but not on particular. And that's this distinction between demands and difficulty again. It's not wondering why a student got a particular... did particularly well or not on an item. It doesn't give you that sort of level of detail... Because there's a, there, are, there are a number of factors which will have contributed to that, demand being one of them. This is really about what was in the item intrinsically at the start. And this is, you know, the very front-end stuff again. So it's not about micro-particular uh, outcomes. So what does this distinction between the scale, of confidence, and crass tell us? There's something about the assumptions, I think. The of Cognitive Demands, as, as it was set out, was really about objective items. It was about multiple choice items, and so it was much more prescriptive. And, and that's quite clear when you look at them side by side. It was about science, whereas CRAS is, you know, has an ambition to be general. It can be used in, in lots of different contexts. So that you know, helps to explain why there's more gaps in it. And I think that leads us on to how do we measure the validity? How do we look at validity? And I think the shape of these two different frameworks leads us to different sort of discussions about validity. So we say Crass is less prescriptive than the original scale. We talked about that one. One of the things that it does lead us to that are the consequent res- responsibilities for anyone using it. And I've said researchers here, but you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be researchers. And this is about how you go through that mapping process. Because to use the the tool or the framework of CRAS, you need to be able to apply it in a meaningful way to the context in which it's being used. And that will mean having to sort of formulate those very clear descriptors to try to come to an understanding about what those descriptors mean along those dimensions and then to, to map them onto scales. So there's a modification process within that. And that's actually very different from something like the scale of cognitive demands, which is where you would take it almost off, off the shelf and say, actually, we can use this because it's been validated. All the criteria are filled in, so we can start to, to put things along those scales. So there's actually much more of a responsibility on the researchers or the users to say, does this work, does CRASS work in this context? How well? And then to make that judgment about whether it's, it's suitable for use. Recognition that language within CRASS, you know, I, I think this is a strength, that language has limitations and judgment making is relative. And I think this is a, a really important one. Language doesn't have those statistical properties of its own right. And and that's really key. I think it underpins the way that we interpret CRASS. That actually you have to do a lot of work if you're going to use language in this sort of standardized statistical way, you know, to put judgments together to make an, another judgment. It doesn't work sort of like that. The strength of this is in the fact that it gives us a common framework with which we can pin down language, hopefully. But there's always going to be a struggle and there's going to be a tension in that. And Alistair's been clear about that in, in, in his writing in 2007. You know, it gives us a, an idea of demands, but actually scale of and size of may be more difficult to try and pin down. And there's work to do on that, I think, if we're going to use it in, an, in anything other than that qualitative sense. So basically, this is what you know the the stuff that we did, which was to look at the use of this method over a seven year period, really go into the literature, talking to the people who formulated it and people who've used it, and then to try to sort of look at those uses in relation to how it was intended to see if there's any sort of contradictions within that and what we could learn from that. And there was 13 studies, it's not a vast amount, but there's probably enough to say from that sort of body of literature. I'm not going to talk about particular studies, because <laughs> that's not what this is about, but it's actually this is our you know, use of what we've gleaned from those studies to say, actually, in overall, these are the issues which really arise. And really, it's a story of variation. Throughout those 13 different studies, we saw a lot of variety. And that's probably, you know, going back to that point earlier but the fact that these were used in a variety of contexts and people are using these, this crass framework in a variety uh, for a variety of different purposes. So maybe you'd expect that sort of vari- variation to exist. These were the sort of principal components of, of, of the variation. So rating scale length. You saw that the, the original framework had, had five uh, levels. We saw, you know, variations between 4 and 10. And and that might not be problematic in its own right because there's a lot of discussion around what is an appropriate scale length when you're talking about measurement. There is no answer to that. But it's something around how good the scale is and how well it's used. And I think the discussion goes into the areas of how well prepared are people when they use that scale? Can they make discriminating judgments at, at an appropriate level? And that's, you know, something which we need to be aware of when we use something like Crass. You know, how long should, should that be? It's really about how prepared people are and how good the scale is. When we talk about data unit, it's really about whether people are using it to look at an item or whether you're looking at using it to look at a paper, a question paper. And again, I've put that little thing in brackets to sort of remind me that there's something implicitly... Valid, I guess, about using it at the item level. This is, this is what it was, it was aimed for. That's what its intention was for. But once you start to say, complexity in item one was this, complexity in item two was this, and then you put those together to, to form an overall complexity measure, that's to wipe away all of those interrelationships with the other dimensions, so the resources, the abstractness, and the structure. And so complexity on its own doesn't tell you anything, and it's not an additive thing that can give you an overall complexity for a question paper. So that's one question, that's one issue about how you use this in a valid sense. And secondly, it's about, if you're trying to look at a question paper in its entirety, is that possible? Do you have to sample? And if you do sample, what does that tell you about a question paper? And that's, again, you know, a compromise that people might try and make, and, and it might not be working. Independent versus interactive judgments. This is the idea of using it with one person or with a group of people. And again, you know, practices have varied over, over different, different reports. Again, there's something intrinsically valid, I guess, about an individual using a framework to look at different... Uh, objects, whether they're items or whatever, because they're using the same reference point when they're looking at object one and object two. When you have a number of individuals looking at the same objects, you have some sort of muddying of the issue because you've got to make an assumption that the reference points between two individuals are the same and then that is then applied to those objects. What you get with more individuals is the potential for more generalizability because you can say these experts all agree... But then you've got to put a lot of work in very early on to ensure that there's something which underpins the judgments of those experts, which allows them to use that scale in a valid and, and singular way. So this idea of unidimensionality, the idea that they, they apply the scale in the same way, and that's a, you know that's that's hard, and that's that's something which people have to think about if they're going to try and use this method, which was designed for individuals, and, sh- and share that across different um, individuals. Context of application, it's been used to, do, to look at different subjects um, in comparison to each other, so items in, in, in one subject as opposed to items in another subject. Again, you know, the, the issue is how, how comparative are they? And, and it really comes down to the expert, the person making the judgment. And, and this is where you know, it comes back to the fundamental principle of the person looking at something has to be equally expert I guess in both contexts and when you're getting some subject contexts which are very far apart that pool of experts might be very very small and therefore you've got to think about are you stretching the tools somehow Um, and that's just a pragmatic and practical sort of um, thing to think through and then finally uh, paired comparison versus rating it in, in, uh, has been used for both of these things. CRAS is sort of attend, intended to be rated. But it has been used for paired comparison. Paired comparison is very good in that it, what it allows you to do is to look at objects holistically and say, actually, overall, this one's you know, more demanding than this one. But what you lose is the particularity. And CRAS was really about particularity, I think. It's about trying to refine those dimensions and trying to pin down the dimensions. And when you start using paired comparison you start to lose sight of some of those things. And I think you know, there's a tension with those two things. So just a few recommendations before, before we nip off for another break. Um, so CRASP, what does it do? It provides a common language to support people's conceptualisation and description of demands. And especially in new contexts, that's really powerful because there might, that might not exist. You, know, you need to start somewhere and you need to create those, those words and those tools of language, and that's, that's great. It's essentially qualitative in nature and, and can profile the nature of cognitive demands for individual users. So if you've got one rater using one dimension of demand on one item, that same rater could use that dimension on another item. And there's a sort of stability in that, and that's good. It's when you start to bring multiple raters in or you try to compound demands with each other, that it gets more messy. And and we're not quite sure how you're going to do that. But actually, you know, the sort of integrity starts to get a bit wobbly at that stage. It's not meaningful for individual users to combine the ratings of each dimension to reach an overall level of demand. So R plus AFS doesn't give you a, a magic number, really, because there's some sort of compensations go on there, and that doesn't help you to compare it with something else. Judgments are relative rather than absolute. In a sense, the original scale of cognitive demands sort of gave the impression that we're talking about absolute judgments because things were very clearly, precisely pinned down and people were were looking at things in a very sort of particular way on that scale. This is much looser and it reflects the fact that the developers were looking at relative judgment and that's what underpinned their development. Rating scales need to be unidimensional, so C needs to be uncluttered by R plus A plus S. It needs to be looked at in its own right. And that's, how, that's more easy when you only have one rater doing that. Once you have multiple raters, you have to do a lot of work to try and somehow standardise those. It can give insight into the demands that might relate to final difficulty out- outcomes, but it's tentative because things like teaching effects, things like how a student felt on a morning, things like does the mark scheme reflect those demands that we originally putting in the question, you're not necessarily in control of. So therefore, this is very upfront stuff and it doesn't necessarily help you to predict outcomes. It relies on the users being able to relate their subject specialist knowledge to those features of the scale. So you have to go through that mapping process. You have to look at, this is the context that we're looking at. What does complexity look like for you as an expert in relation to these items? So it's very much about trying to get that process kick-started. It allows descriptions of demands to be made across a variety of subjects and qualifications. It's very flexible, and that was its intention. But again, we go back to mapping. Mapping is a really important process. It's about investigating the internal consistency of different elements of of learning and assessment materials. So there's something around that that you can look across documents, That was the rationale. I'm not sure it was ever really, really pushed that far. Uh, Interesting. We haven't really seen evidence that it's been used beyond items to look at specifications in general and and so on, curriculum documents. And the original scales were used to rate the demands in single items or in item parts. So the demand of item one plus the the demand of item two doesn't sort of give you the demand of a question paper. It was really about trying to sort of articulate... The particular things in in an item, and that's really about those, you know, internal um, compensations that go on, because demand in its own self is 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 comprises a number of features or particular dimensions. Can Can we take fifteen minutes and then we'll come back, and then the second half isn't as long. I don't think. (laughs) We'll take questions after that. Thank you. We're back. Crass um, KRG. Some sort of the same, you know, the same problems emerge here. We're trying to get to the same places. You know, Gary's getting inside your head type of problem. Um, but this goes back way further, in a way. You know, this is, this is older stuff. It started um, George Kelly's ideas, theories, back into the 1930s. Um, source document, really, for this. I think it's the Psychology of Personal Constructs, Volume 1, 1955, which is why the, the reference is 5591 on this. And it's been really influential across psychology and the fields of psychology. And now it's been, you know, it's stretching out and being used in other fields. And I'll take you back to this, this quote on page 9 of, of, of Kelly, which, you know, highlights the point that Kelly felt at that time it had a limited range of convenience. And what he really means by that is that, you know, it does this job that I was trying to do with it. Which is about trying to understand how people think, how they see the world, and really how they relate to other people in that world. And a lot of it was around personal relationships. Gary. (laughs) And uh, interpersonal problems. And, and, you know... It's interesting, because we're moving on from here. Are we staying with those fundamental assumptions? Is Kelly too pessimistic? Does he say, you know, actually, it could be used in lots of places. Maybe I just didn't see it. Or are we, by stretching it to other contexts, saying, actually, we're doing something different all of a sudden? And I think that question is quite pertinent, because um, it's something that comes back later on. A little bit about the theory. Personal construct theory, two dynamic concepts come together within it. The idea of, of reality. Reality exists. There is an object of reality which we exist within and it changes. And then secondly, people who are within that reality think about it. <laughs> they make sense of it by being in that reality. And and you can see there's a sort of dynamic thing that goes on there, you know. So it's really about trying to understand how people are seeing their reality. So what people do is build mental representations, and there's something around the way they see the world, which is called a personal construct. The, the way you see the world is, is is a collection of constructs. If we can understand those constructs, we can help. We can understand better how someone is seeing their world. We can't be in their head, and we can't see the world as they see it. But actually, if we can understand their construct. We're a bit closer. And there's something around experience here, and that's really core. That if your experience is so way different from someone else's experience, it's going to be harder to experience or to see the world as they see it. And again, when we look at qualifications and assessment and examiners, you know, how close they are to their thing that they're seeing is an issue. Similar to the crass in that respect. So, personal constructs, they have a particular meaning and character that's different from the construct in assessment, and that's probably worth saying up front. And in this context, personal constructs are abstract phenomena which exist in the perception of an individual. They're how they see the world. They work on prediction. So when someone has, you know, forms a construct, it becomes validated when something happens later on and it's in line with the construct that they they had when you have a contradiction so if something happens which they didn't expect they have to reform their construct they have to start to rebuild a construct pathway because their old one is redundant it doesn't make sense anymore and constructs are linear in Kelly's in Kelly's world so what you have is a construct which is poles has two poles and it's linear between those two poles. So things exist along that construct somewhere. So you could be towards one end or another. You know, The thing you're looking at will, will sort of exist somewhere along that construct of thinking. Constructs are also about discrimination. So the idea of trying to understand someone's constructs, you have to understand how they're seeing one thing in relation to another. So they can see something in something which they don't see somewhere else. That's part of their, their construct. That's part of their thinking. It'll hopefully make more sense as we, as we look at the articulation and elicitation of constructs. So really, in, in personal construct theory, the subject of investigation is the representation captured by the construct. And it's not an objective measure of reality. So what we're doing is trying to get inside the head of how someone sees the world. We're not trying to understand the reality of the world in personal construct theory. Um, but in assessment it's been used really to look at examiners and how they see assessment items assessment materials so there's an interesting fundamental difference there we're not looking at reality and their conception of reality we're looking at how they see constructs in an assessment item so the object is different and that's you know maybe a fundamental difference So elicitation. Highly personal, because we know these things only exist within the person. Um, It goes on that subconscious level, but what actually the elicitation process is about trying to bring those things out, bringing them into the social world. And that's, again, one of those areas where all of a sudden you get all sorts of murkiness because people have to use language. So how how useful is language at articulating something which wasn't linguistic in its first sense, you know, somebody's subconscious thought. And also there's a dynamic around the role of an interviewer in trying to bring something out of somebody's head, the elicitation process. And again, that could be an area of compromise, something which can alter the nature of the construct as it's found or as it's written down. It could have been altered by the process of elicitation. The process fundamentally is about is carried out by trying to articulate the poles of the construct, and that's what this, this next bit's really about. So the technique is the interviewer and the, the individual will agree on a set of elements. Elements are objects which you can see differences or similarities in. So that is your core you know, material for the for the process. You take three elements, three objects. And you have to do two things. You have to try and articulate what are similar around two of those things, but different from another. And those two things are really key, because if you only have similarities between objects, you only get one pole. So if you say they're blue, you only know that one aspect, but you don't know the other end of that dimension. Is it lightness? Is it heat or whatever? So you have to have similarity and difference to get two poles. So if someone said, that's blue and that's dark, you know the dimension is about some gradation of light, maybe. It's probably not a good example. These things were really used with people. So it was really about how people related to each other. So they'd see kindness in two people, but meanness in another. And, And so that allowed people to sort of pin out other individual people on that sort of continuum. This is slightly sort of different. It's looking at assessment items and what's within them and what this person's seeing within them. So this is an example of a, of a, a Kelly's Repertory Grid, which was carried out with some examiners, and you can see along the top, five elements, five different questions. This examiner has been able to articulate the poles, of constructs which they've seen within those items, by going through that three-element process similarity and difference. And then they allow you to then place other elements along those scales of those poles, between those poles. So you can see, for example, question B has, is five, which means it's, it involves very abstract or alien ideas compared with question A, which involves fixed or concrete or real ideas. So it allows, you know, again, we've got this notion of a language. It allows you to see how this examiner is seeing an object and then they're allowed to, to put things or rate them in relation to those things. And that's the third part, which is the rating scale. There are a number of principles which underlie this process, which are, are really key. So, we know that the phenomena exist empirically, but only become evident through an individual's construction of those. So where you only see them through someone else's eyes. The personal construct theory was conceptualised as having a restricted range in its original sense, uh, but it's been used in a number of ways now. So it's not just about problematic relationships at a social level. We know that constructs are, and the architecture of construct systems are highly personalised. So it sort of depends on who you pick. So who are you eliciting from? is aspects of generalizability come back. You know, it reminds us of Crass again. That constructs are fluid, prone to change. They're very flexible, dynamic. They, you know, when do you ask somebody it will make a difference in terms of their construct system because it will change over time. So again, there's some sort of changeability within that. Five. The elicitation process requires at least three elements for comparison. So you can't get similarity and difference if you only have two two elements. Six and seven are are really key. Construct elicitation is context-related, heavily depends on the nature of the stimuli being compared. So if you give someone some stimuli, exam questions or whatever, whatever constructs are there are generated from those stimuli. The stimuli sort of prompt the construct. Similarly with number seven, the verbal skills of the interviewer are key as well because actually if you change the interviewer or their skill level, the type of constructs that you elicit could be altered as well. So, six and seven are key because it suggests that the process of elicitation actually has an impact on the constructs that are elicited. And they are key. Eight, it's possible that not all constructs can be verbalized. Um, that notion of tacit knowledge how do we know what we know? How do we say what we know? Really key. It's possible that you get partial articulation. And it's also possible that bringing things out into a social situation, you post-hoc rationalise something. You say, I'm seeing that. But actually, it's only because you're having to say it that you're seeing it. And, you know, what's the relationship between that and the original construct? It's a little bit opaque. 9 and 10, again, I think, say something around the process of elicitation and how it possibly affects the constructs that are elicited. So, nine, construct elicitation requires fresh elements to be used. We have to keep replenishing these things. If you use old stimuli, people fail, to, they dry up, they stop giving you stuff. And it's also, the process is threatened by role-governing behaviours. So the dynamics of social interaction, you know, um, hierarchy, um, interpersonal relationship, shyness, all sorts of things can actually affect the process of of elicitation. Experience is really key, but there will be variance due to characteristics of the individual. So again, issues of generalizability are are, are key here. Group elicitation can be problematic. Just, again, we talk about the interaction of individuals, the way that some people stifle discussion, feel uncomfortable. And then finally, 13, anticipation. Is an important role in construct formation. This is the idea that it's only by testing out your construct and how it explains what you imagine is going to happen next that you, are, you, you start to understand the power of the construct. This is around the interviewer skill. So can the interviewer test you when you say something? So is that what you mean? You know, that, that sort of role, it's very interactive. And it puts a lot of demand on the interviewer because they have to, as a construct is being formed, they have to sort of probe... And question and test, and help the individual to test their meaning and to articulate things clearly. And I think it gives an insight into the fact that this is a really arduous process. It's got a lot of demands involved. So, similar to the CRASS, the CRASS project, slightly longer, uh, leading in terms of the retrievers who'd worked from because it was 13 years rather than the seven. It's been going a little bit longer. Um, we looked at literature. We didn't go to primary sources of talking to the individuals who developed it, (laughs) obviously. And there were a few more studies that we could use. So 24 studies that we looked at um, to review. Again, unsurprisingly, the studies demonstrated that there's variation, not only in the, the uses of the methods across these studies, but also there are a number of methodological departures from the original guidelines. And, you know, whether these are worrisome or not, open to discussion. There's a paper that I'll show you at the end, which, which breaks it down into three themes. We, we sort of discuss the, the outcomes of this project across three themes in terms of contexts. First, there were a number of areas where Kelly's methods are applied in general, regardless of the study context. These are problematic areas which need to be grappled with. B, we have areas which are really specific to assessment. Um, when Kelly's applied to it, which are particularly to that context. And then we've got uh, ideas which, which we formed around the fact that there were just misapplications, we thought, in terms of the original con- context or the original designs of, of Kelly. So, in general, these are, these are the things that you'd grapple with if you were using Kelly, wherever. Um, first of all, the dif- differences in the properties of the rating scale. You know, we, we found people using five scale points, seven scale points. Again, it goes back to the, you know, it doesn't, does not it really matter as long as the scale is working well and people are prepared to use it well? But it does matter in terms of building comparable knowledge. You know, if someone's using five or four and other people are using seven, you know, we can't sort of augment and build on sort of, you know, the sort of theories and foundations of knowledge. And, you know, it might be a, a case of saying, you know, perhaps there's a, a principle of saying we should work to, to a certain number, we should have seven. We, we in our paper suggested maybe something like seven just because it allows enough to go on, but it allows also enough to, to, to compare with other papers if, if people are using the same um, method. Interviewer skills, really key. Um, the idea that you have to prepare as an interviewer, you have to prepare the stimulus, you have to be able to be able to establish reflexive relationships and, and, and really sort of probe and be on the ball all the time, and, and it's really arduous. so you know, we have some sort of guidelines for how you might want to do that, and how you split up roles, and where you have two people and what what each of those roles is. But it's really about breaking out the complexity of that because it's a very cognitively cognitively demanding role for the interviewer. And then the general, generalizability of findings from Kelly depends on who you ask. Who is your you know participant? How generalizable is 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 their view of the world to anyone else? If you're looking at examiners, you know, look at their experience. There is evidence from Irenka's and Rita's work, which I've put on the reference list in 2010, that actually if you get examiners who have overlapping experience bases, they can come up with overlapping constructs. So there's something in the method which allows you to build some sort of generalisation. But again, it comes down to setting up those examiners, choosing your participants and and using your interviewer skills in a very sort of controlled way, which, which maintains some sort of stability in that process. In assessment-related contexts, something around the fact that the breadth of assessment and the number of areas of inquiry being so broad means it's, very, it's likely that you're going to get lots of different ways of applying this method. We've had lots of differences in the choices of elements. So we're looking at scripts, we're looking at items, we're looking at specifications. There's evidence of that, all of that. Again, it compromises the, problem, you know, the, the potential to build on knowledge because actually you know, it's all over the place. So it would be perhaps nice to see something which brings some of those things together and sort of builds on. And, and there isn't so much of that at the moment. Using predefined constructs, the idea that, you know, you give... To help with generalizability, you give an examiner other constructs that someone else has generated from other projects, maybe. It can be problematic because those examiners don't own those constructs. They weren't part of the elicitation. They're not part of their framework. A lot of issues around, you know... What can you make of that then? So, you know, that's, that's an area of, of real tension, I think. And then combining different elicitation methods, there's evidence of this. You know, trying to build generalizability through triangulation of saying, well, we've got some interview data and we've got some Kelly's data we've put together. Again, how, how you articulate those two different messages, you know, the two different sets of, of data, again, raises problems of, of building sort of knowledge, I think. Um, I don't think we've quite... Grasped that one. And then just general areas of maybe misapplication, I think. Differences in the number of stimuli. Sometimes, you know, evidence of people using two stimuli, you know, the, the, the standard requirement of using three, three elements, similarity and difference. You know, evidence of people using two, a lot of inference then around the, what is the, the pole. You know, if you only use two elements, how do you know what the other pole is that you haven't really articulated? Or using lots, really overloading someone's you know, cognition in trying to understand, trying to hold on to so many things to compare can be a real problem. Um, so again, some thoughts there. Uh, differences in the differentiation between elements is really, you know, some, sometimes you get, give me a similarity or a difference. And again, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an opaqueness around what, what is a pole if you only have... That's a similarity or difference you don't have to pin down those two defined poles remote validation or sorry a remote elicitation so the idea of doing it sort of at a distance makes the sort of validation process much harder so if you're trying to probe somebody and their understanding of a construct as they elicit it's much more difficult if you do that remotely or by email or whatever but it's a real you know it's, it's an approach that you could use to try and get to people who are hard to reach but it's a very interpersonal sort of method, and and do you break it by trying to be be remote? Um, group construct elicitation and formation. This has been used. Those issues of you know how do groups work together? Will that affect the constructs you get in the end? Probably. You know you need to sort of answer that question. Conceptualizing the rating scale as interval. Again, trying to build generalizability by sort of bringing people's views together confronts those problems again of what do you do when two people have an opposing view on a rating scale you know this is a qualitative method really unless you highly standardize it is that possible but what you can't do is say well you know someone says it's three someone says it's four we'll say it's about three and a half because what in kelly's those scale points are they are discrete three is different from four so if two people are seeing difference that's something to talk about but you can't just you know sort of fudge the issue by saying now well it, this, this item stands somewhere in between in, 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 overall, in an overall sense. And then just unclear methodology in, in cases. Very hard to replicate because we can't sort of get to the process that people have used. So you know, that's sort of an appeal for, for research to try and be very, very clear in its articulation of, of how it's used a method and how it's encountered some of these problems or overcome some of these problems where groups have been used or remote elicitation has been used and so forth. Okay, really to conclude. We've got a notion here that Kelly's provides insights into the ways that individuals perceive the world around them, so it can be a valuable tool for research. Um, But it's been adapted as it's shifted from its original context. And that's something about, firstly, the breadth of the assessment domain. So the idea that there are lots of different types of assessment, vocational, non-vocational, and therefore, when people are using those contexts they start to make adaptations, so it suits that. But also, the potentially elusive nature of some of the concepts within assessment, for example, demand, mean that in itself you're going to encounter problems or that you have to answer those problems. You've got to try and cope with those problems. So you know that's why people have adapted this method. It's because of the breadth and because of the nature of the domain. And again, you know, we go back to the point, there are some problems around misapplication and very finally, um, similarities and differences, let's bring the, both of those together. Both of these methods are really based on the experience of, of, of the individual who is the heart of elicitation or the interview. The conceptualization of assessment demands exists within their head. Both these methods allow you to get a qualitative account, which does have some quantitative qualities, but they are essentially qualitative. Um, they're about individualised data generation. They really work intrinsically best with an individual. When you want to break that and, and extend that further, you know, you've, you've got some things to try and work with. You've got to try and sort of answer some questions. Um, and they give some insight into items and the performances that they lead to, but there's a tentative sort of relationship between items, demands, and the actual outcomes in terms of difficulty. And that's something which both of them you know, come to. Demands generation is different in both. So in crass, um, we have a notion that, well, sorry, in Kelly's you have the notion that the stimuli give you the construct, so they they come out of the out of the stimuli, whereas in Crass they exist prior to the stimuli. So that's a fundamental difference. Uh, the breadth of demands dealt with: Kelly's is very flexible; it works wherever you you know it depends on what stimuli you give, whereas Crass was expected to be used in Uh, general uh, academic sort of demands, contexts, not invocational. So it has sort of inbuilt limitations, although it can be used, and and that's another story. Um, The forms of preparation, very different. In crash you have to map, you take the framework, you map it, you do all that work up front to try and get people to be able to use it in a way. Uh, Whereas in Kelly's, it's all about preparing the stimuli and then carrying out the interview. So it's sort of, you know, more reflexive at the time. And then the expectations of the researcher role mirror that. So in CRAS it's about mapping, getting the framework in a format that people can use, so working with the experts to pin out the dimensions. Whereas in uh, Kelly's it's more about getting the stimuli, organising them so that you've got them ready for somebody to be able to elicit from, and then providing them with a, a context where they can talk and feel like they are eliciting the constructs accordingly. And there's our, those are the outcomes from this strand of work. So there's something which Rita and I wrote, um, which is just about Kelly's, um, if you're interested in that one. Sanjay and I have put something, something in Research Matters which talks about craft in its own right. Uh, and then there's a joint paper which is in submission which brings both of those together, and talks about them in relation to each other. So that's sort of the last slide I was talking about there. And there's something also on the website, which um, talks about Crass as well, which is sort of this sort of thing, but much more coherent. <laughs> and those are references which you've got, but they're very tiny on your handouts because it's little writing. But anyway, if there's anything you want to follow up with, more than happy. Just email, and I can get back to you.
0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.